G'day guys and welcome to another episode of Staying Sane with Andy Jane. My next guest is a Kiwi who I met in Bend, Oregon. Um, it kind of seems like there's a common theme here as well with uh, guests from Oregon or meeting the guests in Oregon. Um, I'm really stoked for you guys to meet this guest today, so uh, let's go ahead and take a listen. Born and raised in Auckland by a solo mum, Reese grew up as an obese kid being bullied through school. He left school at the age of 16 after he got a DUI. His life, his life really turned around when he decided to go to uni and study finance. After graduating from uni, he spent six months backpacking around Europe and living and working in the UK. After returning to New Zealand, uh, Reese worked his way up through Westpac Bank for over seven years and purchased a house with his long-term girlfriend at the time. After three years in the house, he realized that the whole urban lifestyle wasn't his thing, so he bought a one-way ticket to America broke up with his girlfriend, and he travelled around the United States in an RV for a few months before blowing through all his savings and moved back to New Zealand to run craft beer tours in Queenstown. Please welcome to the podcast, Reese Uting. Cheers, Andy. How you going, mate? Good, bro. Happy Easter. Yes, yeah, actually, holy crap, it is. Yeah, yeah, thanks Easter for... Easter Sunday, mate. Yeah, man. Uh, happy Easter to you as well. You been up to much today? Um... Yeah, well, we actually, um, we got up pretty early this morning. We got up about 2.30 a.m. and hiked to the top of Ben Lomond. So Ben Lomond is a um, one of the highest um, highest mountains here in Queenstown. And so we decided we we're going to hike up there and watch the sunrise. So me and my flatties just um, chucked on the hiking boots and set up. So we're under the um, under the moonlight, just hiked to the top of the mountain, and we were treated with a pretty banger sunset, I mean, pretty banger sunrise. So. Well, what a way to start Easter off, eh? Uh, did you manage to get any Easter eggs? I, I found that all the uh, grocery stores here in New Plymouth had sold out of them. Um, I do have one here, though, honest, actually. I didn't actually look for any Easter <laughs> I didn't actually look for any Easter eggs. I noticed it just said to say that apparently the Easter bunny is considered an essential service. So, yeah, um, yep, she did say that. Um, he did come and visit me, thank God, so that's, a, that's a, always good. Um. I yeah, I really need to get to Queenstown, dude. I have heard so many good things about it. Um, I'm really jealous you managed to hike up Ben Lomond this morning. So apart from uh hiking, uh, what else have you been doing in quarantine? How how has it been going? Um, I'm I'm really lucky with my situation here. So I live on Queenstown Hill in a nice place. We've got really awesome views out over like the lake and the remarkable mountains and that sort of thing. And I live in a flat with four other people. Um, so three are from Latin America and then one of the girls from Czech Republic. So it's sort of a bit of a party vibe here. So we're pretty lucky. So I've got the old um, homebrew set up downstairs. So we've got plenty of booze to get us through the foreseeable future. Nice. That's so good to hear. got the guitar here. So we've just been um, doing a bit of brewing, playing some music. It's been been a lot of fun to be honest are they are they on their place to be quarantined yeah oh definitely are they on their working holiday are they yeah okay that's cool that's always such a good vibe i i acquainted myself i've already said that i covered this in another podcast so i won't go too in depth but yeah i acquainted myself with a few europeans that were um staying in new plymouth over the summer period um and is such a good vibe and they just love going out doing things and drinking and it it felt like i was like seen my hometown uh through someone else's eyes which was really really cool but it was yeah, yeah such an awesome vibe um yeah I, we've got some like half, half of them being spanish as well it's been a good opportunity for me to learn a new language so 
I've just downloaded like some audio books, just like learn how to speak Spanish and just been working with them and just trying to polish up on my Spanish skills. So hopefully I can get something out of this quarantine that's actually yeah. useful for the future. Actually, funny you say that, John, um, the, you know, John, first guest on the, oh, the nice. podcast, he, um, he's just started learning Spanish as well. So you may have to hit him up and do some lessons together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's the thing. So many people in the US as well talk Spanish now, but it's just one of those languages that's used in so many countries. You know, you, like, you can go to Spain, you can go to Argentina, you can go to Chile, like, like so many places speak yeah. Spanish. All, yeah. the, like, I, I used to, all the South I America apart from French. Brazil. Yeah, I started learning French like the first time I went over to Europe. And I was like, oh, it's going to be so cool to walk around Paris and actually be able to speak French. And But then I realized that, like, France is kind of one of the few places, like, apart from, like, some of, like, their... Uh, Tahiti, you know, like French Polynesia, yeah. that sort of thing. But it's it's not a super common language around the world, whereas Spanish is a lot more. Oh, absolutely, so. yeah, completely agree. So, uh, jumping right in, um, how has being uh, bullied at high school affected your life, uh, if it has at all? Um, I find that I'm still struggling with low self esteem uh, issues, uh, partly because of the bullying I received when I was at high school. It, mine do stem from other things as well, uh, but definitely one of the main reasons for my low self-esteem was was being bullied in high school. So you you never struck me as a person to be affected with low self-esteem, to be honest. I try I I try and put on a face, man. I really do, but yeah, I do I do struggle with um, self-esteem issues. It's true. Yeah, it's funny. You you never know what's going on behind those people. Um, it's it's a pretty complex question to answer, and I've probably spent a bit more time thinking about it than what I should have. I mean, you, you can't regret what's happened to you in your life and all that sort of thing. But I mean, I, I was quite big as a kid; like I was I was very big. So I mean, I was at the age of thirteen. I mean, I was ten kilos heavier than what I am now, <laughs> and I was a lot shorter. So I was, I was it wasn't just I was a little bit chubby; like I was I was pretty large. And I don't know if you've heard the, the saying that if you're fat as a kid, you're always fat, and that sort of never leaves you behind. And so uh, now I, I always think of myself as being a fat person, and because I was very unattractive when I was younger, you're always unattractive and it always sticks in the back of your mind, so it affects your confidence, like meeting girls and just in groups of new people and that sort of thing. But on the flip side, I think... When you're bullied quite hard like that, it teaches you to be a very kind person and to be very empathetic. So, like, I could never be nasty to anyone because I know how that feels so well. Mm. But I could, I could never treat anyone like crap because I've been on the other end of it. So I think it makes you a kind, caring person. But, yeah, it, it certainly does shatter your confidence that you never really recover from that entirely. I mean, no. I've got better over the years. But in, in the back of my mind, I'm, I'm still that fat kid, you know? It, takes, it, it does take a lot of work. Um, I, yeah, I had the quadruple threat, man. I was, <laughs> I think I may again cover this in a previous, um, episode, but skinny, uh, ginger, I had braces and glasses, like can't really, yeah. So I got, I got pretty chicken legs and a few, a few other names thrown around. It, it was tough and still Ed definitely Sheeran turned up and now it's like the hip thing, right? <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I know, I know. It's yeah, funny how the the world works. But yeah, no, I completely get where you're coming from, and I um I also agree with how it definitely makes you a more empathetic and understanding uh, person. I like when I catch myself 
um, ridiculing or like criticizing someone like behind their back or something, I, I generally try and cut myself out of it straight away because I mean, everyone does it. It, it's a it's a human trait everyone does it in somewhat but I try and like knowing that like what I was going through when I was a kid um I try and nip it in the butt as soon as I know that I'm doing it um yeah one thing I learned with because because I, I did bartending for a long time probably six seven years one thing that I learned a lot when you're a bartender you hear everything so every single conversation of all the locals and people who drink down at the bar you hear everything and the one thing that I noticed and learned very early on in life is the people who talked a lot of crap about other people also had a lot of crap talked about them. And the people who never said a bad word about anybody never had a bad word said about them. So it's definitely a good, good moral to follow, I'd say. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, yeah. And there's always like, again, like you said, you didn't think you wouldn't have picked me to have self-esteem issues, but there's always like stuff that people aren't showing and uh, let you know what they're going through. Um, so one, one thing that you do notice is the kids who seem to be the bullies at high school that they peaked at high school. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like those were like their glory years and you catch up with them now. And I'm like, ah, life didn't really improve for you. Did it? Like you, you didn't really achieve anything after high school. It just kind of went downhill for you. And it, for me, it was kind of the opposite, you know? So mm. yeah. Got it the right way around. So you, uh, you told me you got a DUI. Um, and that was the defining moment that made you turn your life around. Do you uh, mind sharing that experience with us? <laughs> the, yeah, the DUI was actually quite a funny story how it happened. Um, I, I, I got um, yeah, I got caught drunk driving driving through an orchard in my hometown in Greenhithe. Um, I was around at a mate's place. We were watching the rugby, and we got a phone call that one of my friends had crashed their car into an apple tree down because we used to drive through this orchard to cut from one side of the um, neighborhood to the other so I jumped in my car went down there sure enough he crashed into this apple tree I was like mate I'm just going to run up to my house which was like half a kilometer up the road and get a tow rope and come back and he was like no 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 no, it's all good it's all good stupidly I was, I was pretty drunk yeah decided, yeah I'll go get this tow rope came back by the time I got back there was like cops everywhere <laughs> so, so I turn up there in my car in the middle of this orchard with the tow rope and they're like mate what the hell <laughs> so jeez yeah, wow, that's pretty. <laughs> that's a pretty cool story. Like, I mean, obviously, don't condone drink driving at all. But I mean, it is an interesting, um, an interesting story. I was tossing up whether to share my story since you were kind enough to. So I, um, I've decided that I will. Um, I've always been. I'm so embarrassed by, um, by my drink driving offense. Um, and I've always thought that people were gonna. I'm gonna lose friends because of it. Um, and that's why only my closest closest friends really do know about the drink driving offense that I got. So um, January last year, I was at a friend's, my friend's place around the corner. She was having a party um, and I had half a bottle of um, Captain Morgan's and dry that night. And I went back to my place and waited for like once the party had ended, waited for a couple of hours and then decided that I really wanted some Maccas. And the only Maccas that was um, open, or, or Maccas was open, but the the dining in wasn't open. The only the drive through was open, um, and it was only seven hundred only seven hundred meters up the road. And so I decided to go 
and get myself a Big Mac combo. And just as I was pulling out of the drive-through, like after getting my Maccas, the cops were were, were right there waiting for me. Um, and yeah, they pinged me. I blew a, a 0.11 um, in WA in Western Australia. It's 0.05 is the limit. So I was well and truly over the limit. Um, I got $800 fine. And I got suspended for uh, six months, eight months driving. Um, but did you it lose wasn't. Your license in Australia? Do you, does that mean you cannot drive in New Zealand as well? Does that cross? Uh, no, no, it was on my Australian license. It wasn't on my New Zealand license, so it didn't cross back over. But um, yeah, I um, it wasn't it wasn't a nice experience. It was and having a go to court and all that. It was. I managed to get a, a spend conviction. I think they you call it dispensation over here or something. Um, what does that mean? That where it doesn't appear on your record. Oh, yeah. yeah Dispen, dispensation, uh, I think it's called. Yeah, I can't, I can, I can't remember the name for it, but yeah, it's something. But yeah, lucky lucky enough that it was my first ever like time running in with the law. Uh, it didn't appear on my record, so it hasn't affected me with anything. Um, but I'm, I'm so embarrassed about it. A lot of people don't know that that has happened and I don't really share it. Um, but since you shared your story, I'm like, well, why not? So yeah, no, I can, I, I can, uh, completely understand where where you're coming from with your, um, offense. Did you, um, get suspended or anything or? Yeah, well, I I was, remember what might happen when I was. I was 15 or 16 I was pretty young so I mean at that stage when you're on your learners or restricted whatever I was on the legal limit is zero yeah and so I think even for an adult it was like 400 or something like that and I probably like it was just under 800 it was like 780 or something like that I was pretty toasted anyway yeah um, I lost my license for seven months and got a $600 fine but because it because it happened when I was so young like it's, I think it drops off after seven years anyway so like yeah. in my older years, it's it's gone from my record. So for all like visa applications and all that sort of thing, we usually have to disclose it. I yeah. don't need to. But it was like, yeah, it was pretty severe because like when you've got your license at that stage, I was still at school and it meant that I had to go back to catching the school bus again. And so nobody in that year, like nobody caught the school bus anymore. It was like sixth form or whatever it was. And so I was like, no, nah, I can't. And so after that, I'll just drop that of school. I was like, I don't want to go back, and I, I spiraled like spiraled down. Like, and maybe six months later, I was working for my mate's dad, just like in a factory, and I was like, "Crap, like, <laughs> this isn't how life's meant to go." Like, I've, I've like just, yeah, yeah, wasn't in a good place. And then yeah, it was just like a come to Jesus moment. One day, I just like sat there and I was like, "Wait, I'm only here because like the decisions that I've made put me here. What if, what do I actually want to do?" And then I was like, "Oh, I want to go like." get a successful job somewhere stuff but I'll just go to uni and I mean like through school I had failed maths so it was a pretty ambitious decision for me to try and do that mm-hmm. I was like, stuff it I'll just give it a go and the worst that can happen is I can fail and then I find out what I'm capable of and it worked out I actually managed to do it so. have you were you ever worried about people resenting you because um of the drink driving obviously it's it's stupid thing to do um you're putting other people's lives at risk um like do you find that when you tell people uh that you have a, a DUI uh do they kind of become standoffish at all 
Yeah, I, th I think the most important thing is like everyone makes mistakes and you just have to deal with that. Like no, nobody is above making mistakes. Like, nobody's better than that. But I think the most important thing that you can do in life is make sure that you don't screw the same thing up twice. Mm. Because if, if you're doing the same thing twice, then it means you didn't learn. Yeah. And so I think do, if, if it happens to you, then hey, it happens to most people, even though, even though nobody really talks about it. A lot of people get them. And, but if you get it twice, then it's kind of like, come on, mate. But <laughs> what, what, was, what was the point? Like just, yeah. And so I think yeah, so as, as long as it doesn't happen again and again and again, then it's kind of something that you just, you live, you learn. I mean, it's not like you were doing doughies in the middle of like Queen Street after like two bottles of tequila, like trying to run <laughs> people down, you know, it was like 700 meters from your house. You just went to go get some food. You probably didn't go above 50 Ks the whole way. It's pretty pretty low risk as far as life's errors go you know so. yeah I, I still i still regret doing it but yeah, you're absolutely right um on to a lighter note now uh your backpack packing trip around europe uh was that your first time out of new zealand yeah yeah so that was yeah just after uni i went over there with a group of mates and i, I always wanted to travel ever since like i was a young young kid i was always cutting like pictures out of travel magazines and all that sort of thing and putting them up on a little like um, poster board that I had before like vision boards were a thing. Yeah. And I had like a Kentucky magazine, like in my teenage years. And I was just like going through and choosing all the routes that I'd love to do and all that sort of stuff. So when we left, I found another mate at uni who was keen to go do a Kentucky. Yeah. So we went and did one of those around Europe and it was sick, like such a good time. And then, so we were like, we're going to do a Kentucky, go see all the cool places that we want to see. And then after that, we'll just backpack around like on our own accord. Then like one of my other mates from New Zealand came and joined us, and so we basically started from like started from um, Western Europe, and then just worked our way east until we got to like the Russian border. By that stage, I was like absolutely broke, so yeah. we and started working in a bar in the UK. So, so you you're working holiday visa, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then so I was I was only in the UK for maybe six or seven months, and I wasn't there for a very long time. Did you enjoy the UK? Just... Yeah, like I, I loved working in the pub, like. We're in a little town just outside of London called Cobham, and it's kind of like one of those postcard things that like oh, you see yeah. in the movies. Down in Surrey, so yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's got like, you know, you've got the old like river mole with the little mill on the side. Yeah. I, was, I was with a pub called The Plough. <laughs> so you don't get any more like British small town than that. And it was such an old building that I was like, um, that I was working in like there. The building was actually made from like leftover wood from the Napoleonic warships. So it was that Wow. Old. So like I was, I was living upstairs and working in the pub, but I realized pretty quickly, like it was a, although it was a lot of fun and we we're having a blast at a time, it was quite a temporary thing because I was only enough making enough money to support the party lifestyle that we were having over there. And it was yeah. going. It's so expensive. Yeah. So I was like, I'm kind of sitting in Neverland here and I'm going to have to make a decision. So at that stage I had a job offer to go work for a clothing company in um, the West coast of France in a little town called Beiritz and I was getting back in touch with a girl that I was dating before I went over there and ended up going back to New Zealand to catch up with her instead of going down to France. So, yeah, that's really cool that you got offered a job in France. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, yeah, in, in hindsight, oh, actually, no, nah, I, I think I made the right decision. At the yeah. time. It would have been a cool experience, but I've had so many cool international experiences. that. Yeah, you know, exactly. Um, speaking of Cobham, um, Cobham, I don't know if you know, but um, that was uh, Cobham is where Chelsea FC actually trained. Did you know yeah, that's that? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Did you get any of the players into the into the pub at all? Mate, I, I, I wouldn't know if I did, to be honest. I'm not that massive a football fan, but I do know that like the um, Chelsea training grounds were there and that people used to come for that. So yeah, I, I went there. It was it's a cool little town. I um. Surrey was amazing. When I first got to London, I actually stayed in Hinchley Wood, which is by Isha, just just off the Surbiton line. Yeah, okay, yeah, I'm not too too familiar with it. Yeah, but it was a uh, it was a nice area. I really did enjoy it. Um, how was your RV trip around the USA? Uh, where were your favorite places uh, you visited, and why? Oh, mate, that, that trip was awesome. Um, my goal originally before we went over there was to try and tick off as many national parks as I could. And I wanted to do the whole of the US. I had this big American map, like A1 size, and I'd done this whole route, how I could tick every single national park off in like the most efficient way to all the cities that I wanted to do along the way. And then by the time we got over there, I realized just like how big it is. Yeah. Like the States is just so huge. And we've got, got like a quarter of the way through. And I was just like, this is like we're going through like a tank of gas a day. And it was yeah, getting pretty spinny and it was just exhausting. Like spending one day in each place. I thought we had a twenty six foot trailer and it takes a lot of work finding a place to park it, doing the jacks, all that sort of thing. So it got a little bit tedious after a while. And so we we called it quits. We did about half of the country, I think like sixteen national parks or something like that, but had an awesome time. And if I had to pick a like a best the best place we went to I'd say was Bryce Canyon. Yeah. Have you heard of it down in Utah? Yeah, I have. Yeah. Is that down um is that down Moab way, is it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so there's like Bryce Zion, like Grand Canyon, like Arches, all of those in yeah. similar sort of area. Like Bryce Canyon for me, like like we did Yellowstone and Yosemite and all that sort of thing and they were amazing, but Bryce was I've just never seen anything like it. It was like being on Mars or like made like a some fantasy land made out of like orange melting ice cream and it just was like beyond belief it was it was probably um helped by the fact that i was uh, mentally enhanced on the way um into rice canyon we pulled over on the side of the road because we ran out of gas yeah and so i was just standing out there on the side of the road next to the camp with a little sign like <laughs> need gas help and this dude pulled over and he was like, oh, where are you going? I'm like, oh, we're going to Bryce Canyon. He was like, oh, me too. He's like, I'll drive you in there and like get your gas tank, all that sort of stuff. And then he ended up taking us back out to the camper and was like, what are you guys up to for like the next few days? He's like, I'm hanging around Bryce Canyon for a bit. And I was like, oh. So we like, we're just camping out. So he ended up staying in the camper with us and <laughs> had a bag of mushrooms. <laughs> we ended up t- taking those of them and going for a walk through Bryce Canyon. And it was, yeah, mind boggling. It was pretty pretty surreal experience but it's just so beautiful i've never seen any place like it but as far as like this city that we went to probably new orleans i've heard really good things about new orleans yeah oh mate it's so cool it's off the chart yeah i definitely want to go there actually now that you're um brought up shrooms i might actually quickly touch on the uh, thing you want to talk about so um microdosing uh i'm not personally very clued up with exactly what microdosing psychedelics is um i haven't done it myself um what what exactly is microdosing and why why would someone microdose and do you microdose um no i yeah i don't now i used to so when i was living back in the states i did um i so i where i grew up um magic mushrooms just grew like wild 
wildflowers that were just all over the parks, all over the sides of the motorway. They were everywhere. And so as far as like growing up as like a teenager and early 20s, it was quite a popular recreational drug. And it's, it's an interesting drug because you, you can't get addicted to mushrooms. Like the more you take, the less effect they have. And I've always been quite cautious of them because it is a psychedelic. You can do a bit of damage with them. Like people can add all sorts of things that harm themselves and whatnot. So I was always a bit, bit skeptical of them. So I did them in quite small doses usually. Yeah. And started to do a little bit of research because I found like after you take it, like the next week or the next few months, you just feel like really, really clear headed. It's as if some, it's as if all the, the best way for me to describe it is whenever you have a thought, there's an emotion that's in a, attached to it. So if, you, if you're say somebody passes away and you're missing them, you think about them and then it makes you sad. And I think the, the best way to describe like mushrooms is when, once you've done them like that, you can actually have thoughts without having an emotion cling to the thought. And it actually makes your life very efficient because you can actually sort through things in your mind without getting upset and depressed about stuff. And so I started doing a bit of research into this. I mean, mush mushrooms, I mean, they've been used by people for thousands of years all over the world. I mean, you can look at almost any culture and they appear through history at some stage. And so I started doing a bit of research into micro dosing, which is essentially taking very very small amount i think they do it with lsd as well yeah they do yeah taking a small amount that's just basically to not quite enough you to feel anything so so you're not taking enough to get high or anything like that so i'd put one small mushroom i was just growing them when i was living in bend and so i'd put one mushroom into like my smoothies in the morning so i had a smoothie it's like beetroot and kale and all that sort of stuff and i'd put one in every sort of three or four days and yeah i'd, I'd for anybody who's interested in trying it, I'd definitely recommend giving it a go away. It does, it does great things for your mental health, for anybody who's struggling with like anxiety, depression, anything like that, just struggling through life, trying to get over life traumas or big decisions and that sort of thing. I'd definitely recommend giving it a try. And I'd do, do some homework, do some research. Like there's plenty of information out there and YouTube videos and that sort of stuff. But yeah, I think it's definitely got some credibility to it. Yeah, I, um, I have a few friends that have either microdose shrooms or uh lsd lsd i i personally probably would never do shrooms i might maybe once or twice give it a give it a go microdosing but i don't think i'll ever touch lsd yeah well yeah lsd is not natural that's a thing so i mean it's a chemical that somebody's made in a laboratory somewhere and then mushrooms yeah i mean like i said i mean they've, they've been around for longer than humans have yeah and humans have been taking them as long as they've been around and yeah, I think as, as long as you respect it, you know, I think there's a massive problem out there because there's talk of like legaling it in Colorado and um, Oregon, uh, Oregon as well. Yeah, as yeah. Well. And you need to be a little bit careful with that because if somebody goes out and smashes back to any of those things, there's a good chance that they're just going to go jump off a bridge. Yeah. And, and there's not like, there's, I suppose you could do that with alcohol as well, but it's not quite as severe. Mm. Like there's definitely massive health benefits from having them in moderation. But the problem is, is there's a lot of people who don't know how to take drugs and alcohol in moderation. And if you take too much and you don't respect it, then it can have some serious harm. Yeah, no, completely agree with you on that one there. Um, so moving away from the, the microdosing, um, we, we were talking about this before we started recording the podcast. So um, I've given long distance ago a, a couple of times. Um, both haven't currently worked out, but I'm still open to the um, the idea of long distance relationships, especially if it is the right person. 
Um, so I'm definitely still open to to having a go at it again. Um, I know they're hard for both individuals and uh, uh, lots of people have proven that they, they it can be done. Um, and you have to be fully committed to it. If one person starts lagging behind and not putting in the same amount of effort, that's when shit starts to hit the fan. So you're in a long-distance relationship, aren't you, with Steph, who's in Bend? Yep. For, from your experience so far, uh, what advice uh, can you give to anyone that is in a long-distance relationship or considering a long-distance relationship? Yeah. Um, or it's, what, it's probably a little bit, what are you guys doing that is working? That, yeah, it's probably a little bit easier for me than what it is for Stephanie, I think, because... Like when I when I left Bend, I came to Queenstown. Queenstown's a bit of a party town, and I moved in with a house of like really cool, fun people. Made heaps of great friends here, and it's just been a bit of a whirlwind of like excitement and adventure for me. Yeah. So I haven't had the same downtime, and like it's a, it's a new life that she was never a part of. So it doesn't feel like she's missing from it. Yeah. Whereas we were living our life together in the place that we had in Bend, and then I left. So it was like a big sort of gaping hole there that she was like, "Crap, what?" Um. I think it's it's works well for us for a couple of reasons. Um, one would be the, the time difference. So I'm a morning person and she's a nighttime person. And so the time difference, basically, when I wake up at seven in the morning, she is on her lunch break. Yeah. And so nobody else in the house is up at that time of morning. I'm sort of sitting there in bed just scrolling through my phone or something like that. So I can call and we can just have a chat for an hour and catch up to things. And then like later in the day, it, it's a sort, of, sort of irrelevant because like she goes to bed by the time I'm sort of like just before I sit down for dinner. So it works out quite well. Um, and the other thing probably comes down to that what I was talking about before with not having very good confidence from being quite big when I was a kid is that I never had a, like I, I'd never like end up sleeping with girls or anything like that when I'd go out into town. So it's just not an association that I have. Mm-hmm. So I don't think, right, I'm going to go out to town tonight. It's it's because it's never been a thing for me. It's never really been a temptation because it just doesn't really come into play. Yeah. So for some, for some people, it's really, really hard for them to be loyal because you're like, oh, I'm going out to town and I'm drinking and there's all these cute girls around with that. Do- that doesn't seem to have the same effect on me, if you know what I mean. So yeah, th- th- those are two things that probably help um, make easier it's a little bit harder now that there's no end date with this whole covid thing i mean i was planning to be back there in may so i was you know like counting down the weeks now to be going back to the states and so that's on the back burner so that's indefinite but just just holding out that it's going to change at some point and i'm going to be able to get there i think advice as far as making long distance work um i'd say just keep the communication open all of the time like it's quite it'd be quite easy for me to turn around and be like oh i'm just i'm partying all night and I've just got all this stuff I'm always doing things and I don't have time to talk to her but even if I'm out at a barbecue or something like that and she calls me to have a chat instead of just not answering the phone and being like oh, I'll get to it later and then she's left feeling anxious and upset it's just just picking up the phone and being like hey babe I'm out doing such and such I'll give you a call back later yeah so she knows where I am she knows what I'm doing put her mind at ease and then you know, I can call her back. So it's just, even if it is just talking to somebody for a minute, yeah. just letting them know that you are there, you do care, you'll have a chat. And it's just making sure that you answer those phone calls when they come through. Yep. Yeah. Um, I completely agree with that. Communication is, is definitely 
the probably the number one thing in um, a long distance relationship. So I'm gonna quickly fire off um, just because we're getting away with time at the moment. I'm just gonna quickly fire off three craft beer questions for you, um, and you can we can all touch in one sort of answer. Uh, so you started brewing when you um, craft beer when you were back in high school. How did you get uh, first get into it? What are some of your favorite beers and breweries, uh, New Zealand or around the world? And how do you feel like the craft beer scene in Oregon compares to the New Zealand craft beer scene? Okay, what was the first question again? Uh, brewing in high school. How'd you get high into school, it? Yeah, yeah. So, right. So, so um, I was, I, yeah, I started brewing, I think I was 16 or 17. Um, my girlfriend at the time, her dad made homebrew. And so I, he just taught me one day because I was interested from like a science point of view. And because I wasn't able to buy booze at that stage, you could still buy the kits to make it. Yep. <laughs> so I borrowed one of his barrels. So I was just making my own beer for like me and my friends because it was a way that we could we could get us to drink beer without being able to buy any. So that's why I got into it to start with. Yep. And, and that was just brewing like pretty standard beers, I assume, that you didn't go into IPAs or anything at that point. No, no, no. So, so that was just like the homemade kits that you buy from like Pat's oh, right, okay, Cooper's yeah, cans. yeah. Just throw in those. Yeah. Like you get a kilo of sugar and some yeast. Oh, of okay, yeah, yeah. I was, yeah. I, I didn't get into like whole grain brewing until with a proper setup until I was like early twenties. Okay, so I was brewing like pretty average beer up to that point, and then I was like tried somebody else's home brew that and made some good stuff, and I was like, that's incredible. Did you make that at home? And they were like, yeah. And then yeah, just kind of taught myself through YouTube and just started yeah. buying more and more equipment. Um, yeah, your favorite beers uh, or breweries? Um, Liberty Brewery in Auckland. I actually love Liberty. They do some really nice yep. stuff. Yeah, they do a really, really good at showcasing like particular hops. They had like a Sauvignon Bomb beer that I thought was like the Nelson Savin hops that they developed here in New Zealand. Like that was just one of the best showcase hops for the country in that beer. They just didn't I had that last week. One. I had that last week. Yeah. That was really good. Yeah. That is good. I'm um, also the Citral one. Yeah, that's quite nice. Um, another one, uh, Behemoth Breweries. They do some really, really good beers as well. Um, and w- when I was in the States, one that I really, really liked was a, a really tiny little brewery based down in the um, Yakima Valley um, called Wandering Hop. And it was based around, I think they've got a few of them around the world. And basically people just travel and you just turn up and just be like a brewer there for a while. And then you, once you've done that, you just go off to the next one. Yeah. And just tiny little breweries like that that are just super grassroots and it's, it's not about money. It's not about the bottom line. It's just about making sensational beer. And yeah, I think they nailed it. That was probably yeah. one of my favorite ones in the state. And the obviously, um, I've, again, I've touched on this in other episodes, the Colorado and Oregon are like the grandfathers of the craft beer scene in the whole entire world. Um, how do you find the Oregon craft beer scene compared to New Zealand? I'd, I'd say they're pretty similar. I'd, I'd say that they're two of the best places in the world. Like I, I think New Zealand craft beer scene like crushes Australia and England. England's not too bad in parts, but I think like the Pacific Northwest, because one thing that it's got in common with New Zealand is they grow really, really good hops there. Like since that, like better than the ones that they grow through um, like Europe and all that sort of stuff. So yeah. when you've got amazing hop strains like that on your doorstep, like you can produce really good like fresh hot beers and all that sort of stuff. The difference that I did notice is New Zealand doesn't have like some of the barrel aged beers were quite big in the States when I was there last year. And those yeah. are just, just sort of starting to come into fashion here a little bit. And I've noticed like the percentage of the beers in 
the US in general in the craft beer space are a lot higher in New Zealand. And I was having a chat to one of the brewers um, over in Wanaka. And I was like, why is that? And he was like, oh, it comes down to tax. Oh, wow. Here in New New Zealand, we are taxed on the amount of alcohol that is in the beer. So if if you've got an 8% IPA compared to like a 4% XPA, you're going to be paying paying double the tax on that IPA. So they make beers lower alcohol, whereas in like over in Oregon, like they don't have any sales tax over there. They don't have to pay any tax on the alcohol they're making. So, So they can make it... That yeah, they can make sense. it whatever the hell they want as far as percentage-wise. Yeah. People actually, people, I did um, that beer fest you were talking about. I volunteered there. And so you go in and you get your five little chits that you, go, you can go around and get your beers with. And I noticed the lines for, were always longest for the higher alcohol percentage beers. <laughs> and so, yep. so somebody would see like a, a 10% beer or 5%, they'd go for the 10%. So for them, it's like a marketing thing. Like make it stronger. People are going to drink more of it if they can see it on the bar. They're going to want the really high one because everyone just wants to get shit face, right? Yeah, you know what? That's actually so true. Uh, that yeah, th- that was my experience at Ben Brewfest as well. But they do really nice barrel aged stuff, like you said. I also think the New Zealand sour scene isn't as good as the Pacific Northwest sour scene just yet. I don't think it's particular, taken off. Particular breweries are doing it really, really well, and it's it's certainly starting to pick up a lot down here. Um, so like down at Dunedin, there's a, a, a place um, they, they do basically all just sours. That's what they're known for. And it's a decent sized brewery. I mean, it's not quite up at Emerson's level, kind of halfway between there and altitude, but it's, yeah, they're, they're doing some really good sours and it is starting to take up like quite a lot of the breweries around here. They'll have at least one, if not two on tap now, which never used to be the case. Are they, are they a solid sour though? Or are they still, still very much ex- in the experimental no, kind of? There's some, there's some real good ones. And the benefit they've got down here is like Otago is a massive stone fruit growing region. So like peaches, nectarines, mm. apricots, all that sort of stuff that basically just rot on the ground. Yep. There's just so much of it. And so the breweries will just go in there and just be like, hey, we need like a quarter of a ton of peaches. And they're like, take them. <laughs> you know, they're yeah. just going to go rot anyway. Like what we don't export or chuck into the supermarkets, any infections on them. So they can pick up really good quality stone fruit for Again, yeah, yeah no, good point. Actually, yeah, that's a really good point. There's actually a really good, I don't know uh, when you're in Portland, if you went Cascade Brewing in Portland. It's just oh. sours. Really, really good. Some of the best sours I've ever had was there. Yeah, I can find some of the citrus ones can be a little bit much. You know, they'll just be like a lime sour or something like that, and it's just like oh, yeah. hard to drink. But yes, yeah, so some of the really nice, like fruity ones, the berry ones, yeah, I can definitely get into them. So uh, you, we touched on your introduction that you're running craft beer tours in Queenstown. Um, firstly, I didn't even realize there was a craft beer scene in Queenstown. Um, secondly, did you start this yourself or are you hired by a company to do it? Um, and what no, do no, you no, do so on the tour? Yes, yeah, so, so I got this job. I was, I was still back in Bend when I applied for this job. So I was, when I got back to New Zealand, I mean, I worked in the bank for a long time and I was like, I just don't want to get back into that right now. And I always dreamed of being a tour guide. And originally, I wanted to drive like the um, what are the green the Kiwi Experience buses? Oh like, yeah, such a cool job. And then so I started looking at that, and it was it was quite hard to get into because you have to have like a bus, like a Class Two license and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And then I found one that was running like craft beer tours down here in Queenstown. So I had a look at the website and checked out the company. I was like, this is actually really really cool. Um, so yeah, I used to run craft beer tours in Queenstown, and then. Uh, coronavirus came along and so that's all been squashed it's a, 
basically I'm employed until June and then that's the end of my contract. That's not going to be extended. Yeah. And I, I can't imagine that's going to be taking off here this year for sure. Um, maybe next year I'd say they might have a bit of a chance of like the ski season or that sort of thing, hopefully. But yeah, I'm not, I'm not too sure about the f- future of the company. I haven't had much look into it. Yeah. So that actually brings us on to the final question. Um, so what are your thoughts on this whole COVID-19 thing? I I generally try and stay away from it and only like have a little talk about a little bit of it in the podcast as the, the topic is staying sane. What are your thoughts on it? Obviously, you're in the same boat as me. You want to get back to, there's people we want to get back to uh, North America to see. Um, like wh- when are you honestly thinking that you'll be able to head over um, and um, how, yeah, how do you think everything's going to look after COVID-19? Yeah, I mean, I mean New, New Zealand's in a really lucky situation with the whole COVID, COVID situation. Um, I mean, we've, we, what was it on Thursday? I mean, we had 1,200 cases or something, 14 people in hospital, four people in ICU and one death. Yeah. And I was, I was looking at the government's models for the justification for the lockdown and everything. And they were assuming that 4% of people that contract the virus sorry, that shows symptoms and actually diagnosed with it are going to need ICU attention in hospital. And so that was based off the stats that were coming out of China and Italy. And I was like, that's completely different stats to what New Zealand should be. So what what our stats actually are is like 0.32. And so you need to consider what the end game for the government is here, what they're actually trying to achieve with lockdown. So the whole point of lockdown, they're not trying to eradicate the virus. It's impossible. You can't get rid of it. Yeah. Most, most people who get it are asymptomatic, so they show no symptoms, so you don't actually know who's got it or not. What they're trying to do is reduce the number of people that are getting affected to a rate that is contained to the point where it doesn't over, over flood like the amount of ICU beds that we've got in hospitals. But the problem that they've got is, so there's 680 ICU beds in New Zealand, and currently four of them are being used for COVID patients. Yeah. So it's like, hang on. So, so, so we're slowing down the spread to what did we get? What was the last reading we had last week? Like 49 cases. We had, or, today we had 18 new cases. Yeah. And, and so, so if, if, you, if you're getting 18 new people getting infected per day, essentially to, to get what they call um, a herd immunity or something like that, which basically means that most of the population is immune to it and it's going to stop the spread basically through that. In order to, for that to happen, you actually have to get the most of the population have had the virus and had a chance to get better from it. And if you're only getting 18 new cases a day, you can imagine how many years that is going to take to achieve a herd immunity in this country. So they're going to have to take the brakes off in a big way unless they want the economy to crash because if, if they're only getting cases at the rate that they are, it's going to take such a long time for people to get infected. So they're going to have to reopen things I'm not saying they're just going to lift the lockdown altogether and tell people to go around kissing each other. Yeah. But they're going to have to relax it way down because if there's only four people in ICU beds, they need to be having basically the hospitals up near their capacity without them being overrun. Would be the most efficient way to get the country through the virus. What what happened in like Italy and America that's gone wrong is basically too many people that don't have enough hospital beds, they don't have enough ventilators, and people are just dying on the streets. Mm. which we, we don't want that to happen. I think the government was really, really good at locking down heavily and when they did and containing it and getting an idea. But yeah, more, more people in New Zealand have coronavirus and they never even knew they had it. And I think overall we're a pretty healthy country I and mean, we don't face the same stats that 
Italy do. So I think, yeah, they're going to have to take the brakes off and just let it run its course to an extent. Absolutely protect the elderly and the vulnerable and make sure there's enough hospital beds for them when they need them. But it's it's running too slow here for the economy to actually recover. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Our economy is going to take a massive... Well, not just our economy, the world economy is going to take a massive hit, aren't they? Um when do you honestly think we'll be able to like i was saying to you earlier i've been saying to this to a few other friends um in oregon that i'm I'm holding out hope that at least that part of the united states is going to be in a, a decent enough state so the west coast so your idaho's your colorado's your utah's oregon california washington that they may be in like a stable enough state for me to not have to worry about getting it um or worry about uh, worry about it as much um in june but i mean are you in the same sort of boat or yeah i mean as, as, as soon as i can get a visa to work over there because yeah essentially i'm going to be staying in the west coast for a while catching up with steph and then going up and working hopefully in canada yeah, and it depends when that visa comes through is going to be the hold up for me because I mean it would be silly for me to go over there before I've got that in place otherwise it means that it's kind of an open ended yeah, an open ended situation for me in the US and I'll, I'll end up having to come back to New Zealand if I can't get back up, back up into Canada so I'm better off just going once and doing it right you know yeah so no I definitely get that for an extra few weeks and it's fully worth doing I hope I hope for yours to see that's the that's the difference between you and I at the moment is I already have that Canadian visa and I already have that American visa so as soon as it yeah. looks like the numbers are starting to go that's why my plan is to to head over there then um yeah. you obviously have to wait to be approved for that Canadian visa before you can do make your moves but again like hopefully that isn't too far away um, I mean, we're pretty lucky that we're coming from New Zealand. I mean, if they're going to open up their borders to particular countries and yeah, basically countries with really, really, really low infection rates, then you couldn't be from anywhere in the world better than New Zealand at the moment. So. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, only thing would be finding flights. I don't know. I have no idea what airlines are even still flying between the United States and New Zealand. I know United have a Auckland to San Francisco flight three times a week, but I, I mean, I know no other airlines yeah that's thing yeah i don't want to go trying to make plans until i'm able to otherwise yeah they just they just end up getting trashed and it pisses you off and makes you pessimistic about things so i'm just going to wait until i've yeah <laughs> no that <laughs> sounds a good plan anyway matt that is the the end of the podcast uh thank you very much for having a good yarn with me um and i'm super gutted i couldn't make it down to see you in uh, queenstown uh in february when i was i'm going to be going around the um the south island with hana but um uh super stoked to have you back in oregon i'll probably be with you in bc as well so yeah quite a quite a few cool things to look forward to uh hopefully this year sometime if not next year yeah well frankie's still got a couple of my beers in the fridge there at the bunk and brew so i'm sure i'll be down there having a few beers with you at some point sweet well that's cool man hey thanks very much for that hey good talking to you man have a good one yeah you too happy easter